Hello, everyone. This is Pam, De Cafe con Pam, the bilingual podcast that features Latine and people of the global majority who break barriers, change lives, and make this world a better place. Welcome to episode 284 of Cafe con Pam. Today, we have a conversation with Peter Murrieta. Peter is the recipient of the Imagen Foundation's Norman Lear Writers Award, as well as Deputy Director and Professor of Practice at Arizona State University's Sydney Poitia New American Film School. Peter is a multiple Emmy winner known for award-winning series like Netflix, Mr. Iglesias, and Disney's Wizards of Waverly Place, which notably launched the career of global superstar Selena Gomez. Over the last two decades, Peter has produced over 300 hours of television, including hit shows One Day Out of Time, Lopez, Superior Donuts, and Cristela. His extensive experience and commitment to creating shows that serve as star vehicles for Latinx actors that also achieve mainstream success. More than any other producer in Hollywood, Peter has developed projects that have contributed to the careers of the industry's biggest Latino stars, including Selena Gomez, George Lopez, Gabriel Fluffy Iglesias, Cristela Alonso, Mario Lopez, Justina Machado, and the legendary Lupe Antiveros, among others. Listeners, this conversation with Peter was, I don't know, maybe not what you expect. <laughs> Because as you may have heard on his bio, Peter has such depth in his career and he's done so much. So we literally could have gone, taken this interview in so many different directions. But of course, in good Café con Pam tradition, we explored Peter's story from the beginning. And then we talked about maybe something a little unexpected. So I'm not going to give you any spoilers. Sin más, here is my conversation with Peter Murrieta. Welcome to Café con Pan, Peter. How are you? I'm very good. Very good. Glad to be here. Yes, excited to chat. So the question that we always start with is what is your heritage? My father was an immigrant from Sonora. His father was Mexican. My grandmother was a Yaqui. My mom is an Irish girl from New York City. And uh, they tore the world up in the 50s like nobody. And here I am. Did they meet in New York? No, no. My grandfather on my mom's side had, was a fireman and he had terrible asthma. It talks about like the old world that doesn't exist anymore. Terrible asthma. And the doctor said, you've got to go to Colorado or Arizona if you want to live. Wow. Yep. So he stood up in church and was like, hey, I got to go to Colorado or Arizona. Somebody else in church was like, oh, my son's going to Tucson to go to college if you want to ride with him. And that's it. The whole family left. And um, they met in Tucson in high school. Wow. Because of asthma. Because of asthma. Yeah. Everybody in my family has this sort of a stoic Like, yeah, it's what happened. And then you grow up and you become an adult. You become a writer. You start to delve into history and you're like, so you were a white girl and you dated this Mexican dude in the 50s. In Arizona. In Arizona. And we're like, and they were always like, well, it was fine. And you're like, I don't think it was. I think you guys are bolder than you think. And, you know, the stories come out occasionally, but very rarely. How do you feel about that? Because I often ask my grandma questions and For her, it's painful to remember some things, but I want to know, you know, and so I'm, I'm, yeah. I try to be as gentle as possible. And she's like, no, I don't want to think about it. 
It was too long ago. I don't remember. How do you feel about those potential untold stories of what they lived? Well, I mean, the other side of this is my family on my dad's side and my mom's side too, but all storytellers. I mean, I think no one in my family on either side ever did anything like I do. I don't think anyone ever thought for a second, what is a writer? What does a writer do? How does a writer work? Like it just wasn't an occurrence in our lives, right? We're firemen and ranch hands and copper miners. Physical work. Yeah. So like no one's thinking about that. But as I grew into that space, all the things from my tios and my tias and all these stories that we would have in the dinner table, it's sort of organic if you look at it that way. So while there's painful ones that, you know, people have to be at a funeral and with a lot of booze in them to start talking about, but it does come out in my family. We're really good at like letting it all go and letting it all hang out there on occasion. And I've got a good set of ears and I listen. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Tucson. Do you think having that family experience where people are storytellers and they often talk about, you know, things that happened and they lived, did that spark your curiosity for what you do now? Um, no. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. I, I, I feel like if you really get serious about this work and the writing, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it in the process, like it would be easy for me to say yes, right? That's the easiest thing in the world. And I think sometimes when we try to tell our biography, looking backwards, we want these natural organic signposts to come out like that, right? And I can look at that reservoir now and go, yeah, there's something in there. But overtly, I, I think, you know, I was the kind of student in school whom a lot of report cards had the following phrase of not up to the potential of what I thought. Like there was a lot of like me trying to be chill all the time. I, I got into a, a gifted program when I was uh, in uh, elementary school or junior high school and I, I did it for a semester and I hated it. And I talked my parents out of having to continue it because I was like, I miss my friends and I got to take these special classes. And I talked him out of it. And it's so funny now where you go like, what a dummy, what a big dummy I was. So I think for me, you can look at the like thin ice of like how I became a writer. And, and I would say in college, I was a creative writing major only because my advisor said, you know, are you going to be English lit or creative writing? Because I wanted to get an English degree because I, well, all I wanted to do, by the way, when I grew up, all I wanted to do was teach high school English, coach baseball in high school. It's all I ever wanted. Very low bars to cross. And in this conversation with my advisor, she let me know that English lit would require lots of trips to the library and lots of research. And I was like, what's the other one? She's like, creative writing. I go, what, what's that? She goes, well, you have to write stories and stuff. And I was like, that sounds good. Let's do that. Let's do that one. Less trips to the library. Right. That was it. And so there's that step. And I'm writing short stories. I'm writing poems, writing plays. And then the next step further to what I do is this amazing professor I had in humanities, nothing to do with writing. Her name was Donna Swaim. And she passed away a couple of years ago. I got to go to her memorial. I was very happy to be able to share. She read one of my papers that was about existentialism in her humanities class. And she did this thing, you know, back in the day, pre-computers, you pass the papers back and I got notes and comments on it. And hers had see me, no grade. And giving you the little window in my high school, I'm like, oh boy, I've been here before. So I go to see her and she says, this is the funniest paper on existentialism I've ever read. And I'm like, whoa, 
And she's like, you should think about writing comedy. And I know this comedy group on campus that does sketch comedy every week. And I'm going to introduce you to them. And so that was Signpost 2. And uh, that's how it started. Okay, but I have questions. (laughs) How does one go from you are placed into a gifted program, talking your parents out of it, and then choosing writing? Yeah, well, what I'm trying to get at is like, I took the lazy person's way out early. I was like, that'll be super easier. Oh, this professor thinks I'm funny. I'll go do some funny sketches with some people. And then during that time, I really started to love the storytelling process in writing, started to investigate it further, and then decided that's what I wanted to do. That was a very specific moment, which brings us full circle to where I'm at right now today. So I'm, I'm in Tucson, this comedy group called The Second City. Their touring company comes to the University of Arizona campus. They perform. My comedy group and I, we go watch them. I sit in the audience and I think, so they get paid for that, those people up there. And with not a lot of prompting, I put everything in a couple of army duffel bags and I moved to Chicago in the winter to try to get into Second City. And that journey across country was definitely the commitment of like, I'm going somewhere I've never been to a place where I know no one. And I'm going there to commit myself to this. I luckily auditioned and got in. And I was there about five years and uh, met my wife and my best friends and my manager, still my manager today. And I'm here today because I'm on the artistic advisory board of the theater. And now we're having our first meeting. So I'm going to that tomorrow. Super full circle. I love that. Cafe Con Pam is supported by First Republic Bank. You've worked hard and now it's paying off. That's why it's time to start working with a financial partner who will always have your back. With First Republic Bank, you get a personal banker who's ready to sit down, listen, and provide the answers you need, no matter how complex your questions are. Whether you're interested in residential lending or curious about other banking products, you can reach out to your personal banker by phone or email or visit in person. It's all part of First Republic's commitment to delivering extraordinary service every time. To learn more about their extraordinary service, visit firstrepublic.com. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC equal housing lender. Did you ever think, because given that you, you come from physical workers and then you choose writing, was that ever an internal conflict or was there so much passion that everything else went out the window? Oh, no, there's tons of internal conflict about it. Um, Not anymore, but back then, I mean, my parents didn't even understand what I was trying to do. I did do like set construction when I first got to LA. It's a way to make money while I was trying to get started, you know, going back to physical stuff. Rather than like fall down about it, what happened to me is I would often think about what would my grandfather, not the one who was still alive when I first moved out there, but the past, my Mexican grandfather, what would he think? You know, I'm on this lot and I'm building a wall and I'm doing the thing he would recognize, but in a very different place, right? And then when I finally started working on those lots as a writer, I still had that same, I guess, romantic feeling when I would drive onto the lot sometimes because I would just think about everyone that is in my family, like, what are they imagining? What do they imagine for me? So I had that conflict of that. And I also had a little bit of guilt too when you get into it and they pay you pretty well and 
people bring you food in the middle of the day for no reason. And, you know, at four o'clock, if you want coffee, you turn around and go, hey, we should get some coffee. Somebody goes and gets coffee. And I guess the, the thing I'm proud of is that this 23 years later, like I still think about the things I'm telling you. Like I don't take them for granted and I don't flip out about it because it would merely make me feel bad if I became one of those folks. How do you deal? I mean, it's survivor's guilt, you know? And a lot of people, especially children of immigrant, descendants of immigrants, that survivor's guilt is very real, where we often think about, oh my gosh, my grandmother was crossing this border, leaving her children behind, doing all this like physical work. And I'm over here working to my computer, like very cozy. Yeah. It's real. And a lot of people go through it. So how do you deal with it? Call it out. You know, don't bury it. Let it go into the world, you know? Various times when you feel it, being thankful, trying to like turn that corner, being real, just like I just told you, right? That's another coping mechanism. Like, I'm not going to freak out if they didn't get my order right for lunch. What the hell is that? But then that's tricky, right? Because you can go from that very easily into judging others, right? Very easily. And that's not good medicine either. So for me, I I would say I have a couple of daily practices that keep me centered. One of them is I hike a couple miles a day. Um, I have a couple of rider friends that argue with me that it's a hike because I like to go in the city and like walk around the city, you know, and they're like, that's not a hike. And I go, I don't know. I'm going at like 12 minutes a mile. So I don't know. It's pretty fast, you know, but that helps me. And I also do, uh, I do morning pages. I do three pages in the morning when I get up. Tell me about that. Because I've been hearing a lot about morning pages. And as a writer, of course, is this kind of like your warm up or just? Yeah, it's not a warm up. It's really interesting. It's like a meditative practice. It's what's in here, what's racing around in here, not anxiousness, but like, oh, I said I was going to do that thing. And like, I just heard the train. Maybe it was a train where you are? Airplanes. Airplanes. Five minutes from the airport. Okay. And, and I was like, you know, I sit in the morning and I hear the sounds of the morning and I start thinking about my day. I also, you know, as I've done them for a while now, like there's little rhythms in them. You're talking about meditative stuff, like certain pieces of the pages are like, oh, I've got these things that I'm thinking about. And what I call them is like, I'm being pulled out into the world. Like, oh, there's these five or six things I got to do today. And then I'll sort of announce on the page, like, oh, you're getting pulled into the world. Let's, let's stay inside here. And I'm like, oh, let's hear the planes and what's going on. The coffee tastes good. You know, just like any good practice that you do over time, solutions to stories and solutions to scripts pop out. And they don't pop out because there are questions asked. They pop out because I'm meditative, I'm relaxed, and I'm in it. And like just a couple of days ago, I mean nothing to your listeners, but like just a couple of days ago, like I'm doing this and this is going on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it shouldn't be Sippy's phone that's in the box. Tim should put it in the box. That makes total sense. Why don't I do that? And so those kinds of things pop out. And so as soon as they do, I, I underline and circle them and I keep writing. So it's real meditative. It's not a warm up, you know? Mm-hmm. So, what happens after Chicago? So, you pick up your bags, you go with a dream, knock on doors, door opens, get the opportunity, the life begins. And then after that, what happens? So, um, I'm in Chicago. My friend David is there as a college intern from uh, Skidmore. And he's a comedy nerd who's there. He's like 
you know, hosting and washing dishes and taking classes for free in the summer. And he says that he's going to become an agent when he graduates from college. And he says, I think I'm going to be your agent. And I say to this person who's a few years younger than me, a similar thing for me in my personality. I go, I don't even know what I'm doing. What, what are you, the agent of what? I'm here doing comedy and I'm in the touring company and I understudy. And what are you talking about? He leaves and goes back to school. He graduates. And then I get married. My wife, I meet her in Chicago at Second City. And we're talking about where we're going to go. And my friend is now in New York. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm in New York and I'm working at this company. And I'm seeing a lot of comedy writers that come to New York to write on SNL or try to write on Letterman. But eventually, these writers that are doing this, this is their period of grad school. And then they end up in LA because then they're going to go try to do the other stuff. And he's like, I think you should just go right to LA. Skip New York. Yeah. And wasn't my manager uh, at the time, just was like a friend. And I was like, okay. So I went out there, got a job swinging a hammer, started writing my scripts. My friend moved out to LA, got a job at an agency, called me and said, I, this agency I'm at, they're a bunch of not great people. Stay tuned. I'll keep you posted. Then ends up at a manager's office working as an assistant and calls me and says, I want you to meet my boss. I, I meant what I said. And the boss signed me with the idea that um, I was going to be handled by his assistant when his assistant graduated to his manager. And I started going on meetings. The idea of the story I'm telling you is organic, like just kind of being in the world and moving along. When, when somebody wanted a script, I had one. I didn't wait for somebody to say, hey, there's this contest. There's a deadline in 30 days. There's an agent. Like I was working construction and watching a bunch of television to try to understand it and writing scripts. And so when somebody wanted one, I was like, oh, I just finished one. Let me give you one. So I think there's a consistency to the practice too, right? I love that because a lot of times I think people might see that while they have an idea of a dream and they want to do something and then somehow there's a derailing to your point to stay consistent and keep it going so you're ready when the opportunity knocks. Yeah, that's right. That's what luck is, right? Did you have that in mind? No, 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 no. I would say that the um, the examination of my life didn't start until maybe 10 years into my writing career. <laughs> <laughs> I would say up till that point, it's me running on a wheel, just trying to stay afloat, you know? And you mentioned your, your wife. So how do you manage the move and the continuous passion for your craft with a partner? And I mean, she could be super supportive or I don't know. How does one have those conversations? Oh, uh, easy. She's an actor uh, I met at Chicago. She's way funnier and better actor than I am. We got married and then, you know, it was a mutual decision. We both wanted to go out to LA. She had been doing a lot of voiceover work and kind of sustained us for a little bit when we first got there in terms of voiceover stuff. So it was really um, a creative marriage all the way around. And so there was never any like worries. In fact, there's a couple of, quick little anecdotes I can give you to, to round that out. Like one was one of my colleagues that I work with right now, a writer on a show called Primo that's coming out on Amazon Freebie in February, I think. He came from Texas to visit, to do some work in LA and then came over to the house. And he had never seen my house, but he'd been working with me for about a year. And he walked all through the house and came down and we were going to a Dodger game, I think. And I came out and he said, um, he goes, it looks like a lot of creativity happens in this house. And I was like, that's sweet. That's really sweet. And I think what he was referring to is like my wife and I, we collect 
paintings. We have um, a lot of antiques. I, I bought a diner booth because when I first started writing in college in that sketch group, I worked at a diner. Like I wrote at this back diner booth. And so when I had money, I was like, I want to build a booth like that to write in. So like the house feels like that. So I've got my partner there and we're doing that. That's awesome. The other thing is my oldest son is named Joaquin. So I got another Joaquin Marietta. He's a coach for the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Pittsburgh Pirates system. He's in the minors now. He just started last year. Well, when he was in high school, he was like, I want to be a baseball player. And he was a baseball player in high school, played baseball in college. But people would always say to me, like, are you going to have a conversation with him about like, let's be real about this, you know, because hardly anybody does it. And I was like, well, I could. But when you really think about the odds of like all the people that want to be comedy writers or writers professionally and how many really get to be professional writers. So if I manage to climb over that wall, who am I? to tell anybody they shouldn't try. So I supported him, Aliza, my wife supported him and he's doing it and it's awesome. So I think that's the world we've made, my wife and I. So fun. I mean, yeah. it's always better when you have fun together, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll fast forward a little bit, but let's take a quick coffee break. Peter, you drink coffee. What's your favorite coffee? Brewing method. Ooh, I have such a quick answer. It's, um, you know, iced coffee because I grew up in the desert. So like, come on now. As cold as it gets is like 60. Forget it. I want iced coffee. And then, uh, you know, I do love uh, Cafe de Oyo. I do love the little cinnamon and the, I love it. There's a place on Sunset's closed now, but I used to, it was a restaurant. It wasn't a coffee place. It was a restaurant that would make it. And I would cruise by there maybe three times a week and come in when they were opening for like the lunch. So it was just the workers coming in and the woman would see me and she'd know all they want, give me a to-go cup. And she would make it for me, even though they weren't open. Now there's a couple places in, in my neck of the woods that make it, but it was hard to find for a little while. Agreed. Cafe de is one of my favorite ways of coffee drinking. And I will say the best Cafe de Olla comes from restaurants. Yes. I've not found a coffee shop that does Cafe de Olla that's good, but the restaurants are oh so good. So good. And why do you think that is? I think because, so I, at some point in my life, I was a barista. And when you make coffee, so different schools of thought, of course, but in the coffee shop that I worked at, and a lot of establishments, actually. It's all about the churn. So how many people can you get through the line the fastest and the most convenient way? The appreciation a lot of times of the coffee making comes from the Italian way, which is, you know, the latte and cappuccinos and the espresso. And so there's like very little interest in making a true form of cafe de olla because it's more like, let's just make it quick and easy and, you know, yeah. versus the restaurants who actually, I think, care more about the craft of like using the actual olla of the clay pot and, you know, using the cinnamon and the clover and like yes. doing the actual ritualistic way of making the coffee. I think that's why. Do you remember when, and I mean, I'm older than you, but Starbucks back, back, back. I, I wouldn't say it's at all the same, but like you would get coffee and there was this bar and it had cinnamon there. Yes. 
Like, and I remember like when I saw it the first time, I was like, oh my God, there's a place that makes coffee and I can put cinnamon. It's not the same that we're talking about, but it felt like great. And then I don't even know when they stopped it because I was thinking about the other day when I had mine that I get from my restaurant that I go to and I was walking by a Starbucks. I was like, why do you not have cinnamon out there anymore? What's up? It's interesting the way these tastes change. For sure. I think with the Starbucks and the cinnamon, it could be that pandemic. <laughs> I know. It could easily be that. It also, I yeah. feel like, is more like you said about the churn. They're like, we don't need people stopping and mix them. We're going to get them out of here. Yeah. Grab your coffee and bounce. Okay. On my end, I'm drinking my regular Four Sigmatic, which is mushroom coffee. And sometimes I add cinnamon. I have this fad now of powdered milk in my coffee. Like not half and half, but like actual whole milk powdered. Yeah. Yeah. I went through this like depression. I'm joking, but I was really sad when the the can that I had finished and <laughs> listeners were like helping me find it because apparently it's out of stock. Like it's a it's oh, like Oh wow. Yeah. And so <laughs> we haven't found it. Actually, we found it in Sam's Club, but I don't have a card to Sam's Club, so Well, that's another thing. I know. Are you a I Costco know. person? Do you have a I'm Costco? I'm a Costco person. Yeah. Yeah. But if Sam's wants to sponsor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll gladly go and get some powder milk. So I went back to my regular black coffee. That's how I usually drink it, except for when I have powdered milk. Are you a black coffee person? Yeah, yeah. If I'm not doing the, what we talked about, it's always black. Yeah. I want to taste the flavors. I want to feel it. I want to know about it. Yeah. For sure. Agreed. Okay, let's get back to the show. Hola, Vanice. By the way, if you are enjoying this conversation and you want to keep talking about it, if you have some comments and maybe some questions that you have, follow me on social media and let's keep that conversation going. This is your reminder to screenshot and tag me at Cafe Compan Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And let's keep talking about it. Tell me what's resonating. Tell me what isn't. Tell me what do you wish I asked the guest? This is your chance. And if you're on TikTok, I'm at Cafe Compan Pod as well. Let's stay connected. So Peter, tell me about Joaquin. Yeah. What do you want to know? What do you want to know? What do you want to know? Well, first, how did you learn about Joaquin yourself? Oh, from my family. I mean, he's a legend. There are stories in my family that are told to you when you're a child, when you're a teenager, when you're an adult. It is the currency and the story of our family. The oldest in, in every generation is named Joaquin. So we have like my, my son's name, Joaquin. My dad is Joaquin. That's a thing in our family. And so I can't even tell you. I mean, I, 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 it may be some of my first memories. People talked about him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And like, I, I have a memory of going um, with my folks probably to Tombstone, Arizona, somewhere Joaquin was never, right? But going from Tucson, like a day trip down to Tombstone, Arizona, site of the OK Corral, and going in a gift shop with all the trinkets and stuff. And there was a wanted Joaquin poster and I was probably six, seven, and um, seeing it, and there was recognition. I have that. I remember the visual of seeing it and recognizing, which would tell you that I had been hearing stories about him. It's your last name too. Yeah. So there's like familiarity with it. So for the two people that don't know who Joaquin Murrieta is, could you tell us? Yeah, he was a person who fell in love and did a couple things that was very unusual for the times, and the times were the 1850s. The first thing that he did that was unusual is he took his wife, his beloved, north into California to seek gold. That time of the world and in that place, 
mostly people didn't take their wives with them. It was probably the greatest, I think, time of like rampant capitalism in the United States. In my mind, the country was tilted. They found gold and everybody kind of tilted and scrambled down towards it. San Francisco cities grew 100 to 200% per year. And it was mostly men, mostly, not entirely, but mostly. So he took his beloved North with him and he ran into some trouble. He ran into some racism and some greed and people hijacked his claim. They hung his brother for stealing a horse, which his brother didn't do. And then they did some terrible things to his wife. And she died, no? Yeah. And he took his cousins and friends and went up into the Sierra Nevadas and then started taking it out on the people that did that thing to his wife and to his brother and eventually getting revenge and then turning that revenge into becoming sort of a Robin Hood figure in the gold country, feared by the white folks, but a friend to everyone else. You know, uh, he stood up for himself. In my family, that's a big deal. So we don't see him as a bandit. We see him as someone who stood up for himself. And there's that, the perspectives of depending on who you ask, how Joaquin Murrieta is seen, right? Yeah, see. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're right. There's a lot of perspectives. If you look at California history book in high school, they'll tell you a whole different story. Correct. And so because of your craft, the industry that you work in, you've taken it to tell the story of Joaquin Murrieta. Yes. I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to do it in the right way. I've always been carrying it around and was lucky enough to meet Jeff Marriott, who was a novelist, because I've never written a novel, and Russell Binder, who was a publisher. And we did that. And uh, we got that story out. It's very exciting to me that there's been many books about Joaquin, many, many books, scholarly some, some dime store novels, some poorly written historical nonfiction books, you know, really tough to get through. And this is the first story of him told by somebody who's a descendant. So we wanted to make sure that that came out that way. And how does Peter go about making sure that the facts are right, the storytelling is cor- and also like you said you've not written a novel and so like getting the resources, what was the first step that you took when you said I'm going to jump into this project? Well, the first thing is, you know, it's my lifetime of the stories that have been told to me, right? And then also because of my last name over all this time all those books that I've just told you about, they come into my possession, right? It's I don't even go look for them. You run into somebody and they're like, oh, I, I read this book and, you know, and then they'll give it to you and you go, oh, that's the 1932 Francis LaBelle book that's kind of just rewritten of the Yellow Bird novel. And it's weird that this woman named Francis got like, she just basically republished the novel of this guy, Yellow Bird. And you're like, okay, so these just come in your possession. So I've, I've had all that. It's almost like I've been in the library that I never wanted to go into, right, for my whole life in this subject. So then when the opportunity presents itself, you have a lot of conversations about what are we going to do because we call it a novel because we don't know those conversations that happened, right? And we don't know exactly who Rosita was. Now, what we do know is she comes from the Felice family. We do know that down in Trinchetas, where my family's from, the Felice family had a little bit more money than the Marietas. We know that. And we know that um, there's a story in the Felice descendants down in Trinchetas. There's a story that when Joaquin decided he was going to go to California and went to talk to her about it, 
the Felice family said that um, he went to the well where she would go get water for the family every day and said, I want to go to California and I want you to come with and we can make preparations and get supplies and we can go in like a couple of weeks. And her response is, let's go now. You know, and that's their family story, right? Because that, it, it, but, but taking that spark, you know, we turned her into the character that's in the novel. And, you know, there's certain things in the novel that are certainly not true, probably. Like the idea that she was very um, well-read and had ideas of socialism and, you know, progressive thoughts. Those are all things that existed at that time. But we wanted to imagine, like, who would be, what would be a badass female on the road, you know? And how do we make everybody that's reading the book fall in love with her? Because previously, she's kind of a trope in previous stories, to be real fair, right? She's a trope. And so as a writer, you go, well, how do I make a character that you actually fall in love with? You will fall in love with. Because I want you to feel it when he feels it. And so I think that was like an example of how we mix fiction and fact, and we come up with something that we feel is organically true while we're still using our imagination. And how was it for you to move into this novel genre? Exciting, scary. You know, in my last six or seven years, I've had a real cool uptick in my career. And I don't even mean financially necessary, but like I did comedy for a long time. And, you know, in the last five or six years, I've been able to write a animated feature for DreamWorks. I'm doing a drama now for Universal. I did this novel. I wrote a comic book for Starburns Comics. Like I really have been having a good time being scared out of my mind because like each one of these things is like, well, I don't know how to do that. And it's pretty scary. And the the phrase, you know, I always talk to my wife or my friends or my collaborators is like, if I'm scared, we should probably try it. And how do you not sabotage the fear? Because fear sometimes could paralyze people. Yeah. I just wrote about that in my morning pages today. Here's what it happened. There are these things that you write down sometimes that are like um, the sensor in your head or the the devil on your shoulder who might say things like, I'm scared that great people don't want to listen to me. That's deep. Right? And you sit with it. And I wrote it and I'm being very vulnerable. I was like, I sometimes I'm scared that, and, and, it, and then you ratchet all the way back in your life. And you're like, how many people in my life have I introduced myself to every time I see them? Because I'm very sure they don't ever remember me. And sometimes they don't remember me. And sometimes they're like, well, it, of course, but I do it. So there's that. And there's other things. And there's times where I feel like, how come I said it? You didn't hear me. And then somebody else said it. And you're like, hey, that. So how do you turn that into an affirmation? How do you turn that into something you can do? And so I sat with that this morning and I said, okay, well, then instead of that, I'm going to say, I have many smart and thoughtful things to share with great people. And I'm going to try that hat on. I'm going to walk around in it. I'm going to try to give that as a prescription to myself and make that the way I look at it. So. I think you do that every day, whether you want to admit it or not. You have these little things and you've got to figure out how do I how do I turn that around? Indeed, every day. And I think as you grow in your career, I mean, you, of course, have much more experience than me and much more success. But as you continue to do things, then more scary things come across you. And you're like, ooh, I guess yes. the last one yes. prepared me for this one. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. This one hour drama I was just thinking about on my, my hike this morning and I was like, God, I'm going to have to know about like this whole world. Like I'm going to have to do a lot of research because like in other shows, you're like, I don't know. I know how a family works or I know what it's like to be in an office. And so I'm like, gosh, there's probably drama writers that do this every day. 
but yeah, it is, it is, but, but I will say it's what keeps me feeling excited. You know, a younger writer on a show a couple of years back, we were sitting in the writer's room and we were having a problem with like act three and somebody pitched something and I was like, Oh my gosh, that we should do that. And the writer sitting next to me was like, you seem surprised. I go, I am. I would never have thought of that. And they said, but you were so experienced. Like, I can't imagine. They were like, wow, there's something that you don't know. And I was like, oh my gosh, the only reason to show up every day is there's so much I don't know. There's so much I don't know. And I forget that I've been doing this long enough that somebody in that room is looking at me like they think I know everything. And we've got to dispel that immediately. I don't need that pressure. I don't need that pressure. And on the other side, also to give the the younger people permission to say, you might have really, really good ideas that are fresh and new and unexpected. Yes, for sure. This is so fun. What are you working on right now, Peter? I'm uh, working on three things. I'm working on uh, Primo, the show for Amazon Freebie, and um, working on an NBC pilot with Pete Holmes, the stand-up comic Pete Holmes. He and I are co-creating it. It's a work show. Um, that I'm excited about. And I'm working on this drama, which I can't tell you much about it, but it's pretty awesome. And if we can get it going, we'll be amazing. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned. <laughs> Where can we find the Joaquin Murrieta story, the audio version of it? Yeah, the audio version is called uh, Blood and Gold. And um, it's on Realm, is the producer, but it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts. It's wherever you go to your podcast, you just look up Blood and Gold and uh, it'll pop up. And I think it's uh, 16 episodes and they come out once a week. They might all be out now. Uh, Richard Cabral does the voice and is so amazing. I don't know if you've heard it yet, but he's incredible. The book you can go to, I mean, the old socialist in me would like you to go to Powell's books or Abe books to pick up Blood and Gold. Others would say, well, go to Amazon because it'll drive up the number you make your own guess. But Blood and Gold, The Legend of Joaquin Marietta. It's in all those websites to buy. Awesome. And of course, your local library. <laughs> yes, always, always. And one thing, when I, every, anytime I talk to authors, I remind listeners that if you don't have maybe the means to buy the book or like I have books and books and books and sometimes I'm like, I don't have space for more books. Supporting your local library and asking them to order the book is also great for the author because they ordered, you know, a bunch of copies. That's great. It's tremendous when you do that. Exactly. I've had that happen with a couple of other things I've done, a graphic novel and things like that. And it's pretty great. It also gets you into a different world because there's actually rewards for libraries and it's a cool thing. So if you do have a local library, first you should go always because there's also, uh, you know, apps and websites associated with libraries. You can digitally uh, borrow things now. But yeah, that's a great idea. Where can we find you otherwise? Or do you like to connect with people? Mighty Peter is uh, the Twitter account, but I might not be on that much longer. <laughs> and we'll see. It's a mess. It's a mess. I struggle with that. Let me, let me ask you this. On one hand, it's a mess, right? I don't know how I got a blue check. I just woke up one day and I had one. I don't care if I have one. I don't care if it goes away. Not going to pay for it. Doesn't matter. But as I watch people tell me they're leaving, on the other hand, I have a couple of friends on Black Twitter that have had incredible threads about like, oh yeah, you know what? I get it. You're leaving. But guess what? I can't stop being Black. And um, 
you got to stand in the middle of this hellfire. You don't just get to leave it. That's not how this works, activism. Uh, here's a big reminder. And so I'm like, oh, wow, that is super interesting and a real interesting take, you know. But I'm on Twitter there at that handle. I'm also on Instagram at that same handle, Mighty Peter. Facebook is very kind of an outlayer, but I do post to it occasionally. And my rule there is if you do request me and we have more than five mutual friends, I'll take you on. And who knows? Who knows? Maybe we have mutual friends. That's it. What's your remedio? What's your remedy that you want to share? Here's one. My grandmother used to say this was her magical cure for a bloody nose. Have you heard this? No. Okay. She would go to like the little ashtray with change in it and she would find a penny and it always had to be a penny and she would come over and like and I get a bloody nose get hit while we're playing or took a ball to the nose baseball or something and my son gets them too and she would say a prayer and she would press the penny to your forehead I'm pressing it to your forehead right now and she would say now keep that on there and I thought it was magic now of course you get older and what are you doing when you're keeping the penny on there. So it's my favorite kind of magic, which is it's not really magic, but when you're a kid, it seems fantastic because it was always a penny. Like, like a good magician, she would, it would, dime wouldn't work, nickel wouldn't work, had to be a penny, had to be a prayer, and then the press, and then that. And then you're like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get what you're doing. That's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. And I've not heard of that one. Also, it makes sense in the desert also because it's so dry, lots of bloody noses happen all the time. Lots of bloody noses. And what's your quote or mantra that you live by right now? I'd say for the last few years, work hard and be nice. Yes. Always be nice. There's no reason not to be. Right? Okay. So, Peter, what would you do if I gave you $100? What would you do with them? I would, and this is something that happened in the pandemic, I would buy a gift certificate to my local bookstore, Chevalier Bookstore. And I would never use it. Okay. What would you do if I said you have to spend it on yourself? If I had to spend it on myself, I would probably buy a baseball cap. I have probably two or 300 baseball caps. Oh my gosh. Do they have their own room? There's an entire top of a closet and they're stacked in rows and it's insane. So I would probably do that. Um, there's a guy on Instagram named E Crowns that I buy my caps from. He makes them. There's a couple of other websites. Like, I'm uh, nuts about it. And it goes back to baseball again. Here's one that he made that's um, in honor of Vin Scully when Vin Scully died. So it's the microphone and angel wings. So, like, I'd probably buy a cap. That's a good one. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being at Cafe Compound. This was fun. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, I'm glad. Thank you so much for your work and for sharing all the things, Joaquin, despite that there's so many stories about it, but I can't wait to finish yours because it's, it comes from the source, I think. Yeah, good. Hey, everybody, stay shiny. All right, listeners, that was my conversation with Peter. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. And maybe, like I said in the beginning, we kind of took this a little bit, I don't know, unexpected. I guess, because we talked about maybe something that you didn't think about, perhaps. I don't know. So I'm curious, now that you have heard firsthand from someone actually related to Joaquin Murrieta, what do you think? And 
I'm also curious to know if you listened to the audio series of Joaquin Murrieta, because how awesome is that to be able to explore the story of a character that we have known about and heard about and actually consider telling the story from that firsthand experience. I think it was really cool to be able to explore with Peter all of that exploration and passion, frankly, to tell the story of Joaquin Murrieta from that lens. And so I hope you enjoyed that. It was really fun talking to Peter. I Maybe one day I'll talk to him again. I would love to have a conversation with Peter in person and maybe do like a coffee shop and just talk more about all the things that he's done and created for the purpose of telling our stories. But bueno, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We are back to our regular programming. So last month, I pre-recorded all the episodes for November. It was kind of fun, actually, because things were done. I'm actually considering doing the first week of the month to batch all the episodes for the month. And then that way I can be free of recording. Only maybe doing interviews. I don't know. Let me know if you want to like more behind the scenes of how we do and run Cafe Compan because as you know, it's not just me. It's a whole group of amazing, amazing people that make Cafe Compan happen and I couldn't do it without them. So I would love to have a behind the scenes. Maybe I'll bring the team on. How fun would that be? Let me know if you want to hear that. Bring the team that is behind the voice. But bueno, if this is your first time here, I hope you feel at home. I hope you enjoyed our time together and I hope you give us another chance. The invitation is for you to subscribe first. Then if you have the bandwidth, the capacity, the will, the desire, rate and review is so important. It so supports the show. It so supports other shows that are similar to Cafe Con Pam because as more and more people review us, then at the bottom of the platforms where you listen to your show, Apple Podcasts specifically, there's recommendations. And so as people continue to explore and find us, they can also find other creators that are just as amazing and they are creating content for you to have content to listen to all week. Because, hey, I only give you one podcast a week. So what happens the other days, right? So I so appreciate if you take the time to leave a review and or a rating and subscribing is awesome also because it helps our numbers and downloads. And of course, as you know, we have now sponsors that are supporting the show and having those downloads make a difference. <laughs> so listeners, thank you for being here once again. This is super awesome to get to connect with you through this way with my lonesome microphone in hopes that somebody on the other side is listening. And I would love to stay connected. The easiest way, of course, is social media at Cafe Compan Podcast. If you want to join our Discord server, stayshining.club, you can join us. It doesn't cost you anything as of right now. And we have fun conversations about the show, about mental health, about first-generation problems, about remedios. We also discuss them there. And it's a great place and space to gather online and continue our conversation. So I invite you to join us those ways. And if you are curious and interested about my work, head over to cafecompam.com. I am a business resonance coach and I support first generation Latina business owners who want to create businesses that feel aligned to their body, their mind, their soul, always prioritizing their nervous system, always prioritizing their mental health, and always making sure that rest is included. And I have a really 
unconventional way of doing business. A lot of bros don't agree with me. I have friends actually who are like, you're weird. And my business is working. So check it out. GafaCompam.com. It's the easiest way to find me. And listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much for being here and supporting the show. And I frankly know that during the holidays is hard to listen to podcasts. I mean, I don't listen to podcasts during the holidays because I'm traveling. I'm dealing with family. I am just my mind is in a different place for myself. For example, I'm doing business planning for 2023. I am closing programs, reopening programs. And so my listening hours reduce during this time. However, I am subscribed to shows that I support. And so if you listen to this, tell your friends to subscribe. So subscribe to the show. So when you are ready to catch up, then you have all the episodes there and you don't forget about us as you are dealing with this capitalistic holiday season. <laughs> y bueno, un abrazo, stay warm everyone, y como siempre, stay shining. Sabrosura, pa ti que, que.